We have two scripture readings this morning, both from the New Testament. The first from Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And the second from Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. So from Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then back to Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Therefore is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. We're back in Ephesians. It's actually been three weeks because of Easter. We've got some uh, additional information that floats around the life of the church. Some of y'all, many of y'all receive the announcement sheet electronically. You usually get it on Friday, I think, and uh, in there, or hard copies out of the Welcome Center desk. Uh, we've got walking in the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to read it, but it lists for you the eight instances that we've already covered together uh, this winter and spring of walking, which means to, to live, to go about your life, and how we are to walk in manners worthy of our calling in Christ. And so we will continue that today. And in doing so, our topic is marriage. Uh, I was telling folks in the previous hour, that Ephesians chapter 5 is likely the most famous passage in the scriptures on the topic of marriage, but sometimes that's exactly how we treat it. We treat it as a topic that, okay, Paul is teaching all about how to walk with the Lord and all that, and then all of a sudden he's just going to do a standalone sermon on marriage for your consideration, just, just for the fun of it, and then go back on with other things. And that's not the case at all. What he has to say here about marriage is the outworking of what he's been saying all along, that if we're in Christ, if we have union with Christ, um, if we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, where we left off last time, Ephesians 5.18, it changes our interactions. It changes our relationships. Today we'll look at marriage, and next week we'll look at other relationships, parenting relationships, marketplace relationships, if you walk with the Lord, if you're filled with God's Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and by the way, compared to Colossians 3, um, the results of letting the Word of God richly dwell within you in Colossians 3 are very, very similar to the results of being filled with God's Spirit. So if you know the Lord, if you're walking with Him, if you're filled with God's Spirit, if God's Word is kind of welling up within you, it influences, it affects your human relationships and your interactions and the way that you relate to other people. And that's the best way for us to understand uh, the context of what Paul has to say about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Now with that said, I have myriad reasons for some reticence on my part on talking, uh, in talking about marriage with you all today. Uh, not all people marry. Not everybody here is married. Some have been married and are now divorced. 
Uh, and this is talking about kind of the ideal marriage, spirit-filled marriage, and what it can um, look like. Uh, I'm also daunted at the fact that even though I just celebrated with Kelly our 30th wedding anniversary, it sounds pretty good, um, there are folks in this room who have been married more than twice that long, longer than I've even been alive, if you can imagine that. Um, so there are many, many reasons where it's very daunting to speak about this. I'm also convicted because I love my wife. Uh, I have a great wife. Um, she is, other than Jesus, she is the most winsome thing about my life. She's only been here for one quick visit. A few of y'all got to meet her. Uh, she and my daughter may come back around Memorial Day or June 1st or something like that. But um, I'm convicted in preaching on this because... I realize that even though I love my wife, I don't express my love for my wife very well. I don't demonstrate it to, to her very well. Um, there are more reasons, but uh, who cares? So l- l- let's get on and read the scripture. How about that? Ephesians chapter 5. Now, verse 22 begins with exhortation to the wives and 25 to the husbands. I have deliberately included verse 21, which we read last time we were together because it reminds us of this overarching context. Here then, the reading of God's word. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, without blemish. Verse 28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, your power is made perfect in weakness. And we ask that you would be honored today, that you'd be honored in the preaching of your word, that you'd be honored in this church, that you would be honored in our marriages and in the way we think about marriages. We pray, Lord, that we would ask you for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. knowing that you're a good heavenly father and you give generously to those who ask. Uh, We pray that you would refresh us, strengthen us, sustain us by your grace, uh, help us to be people who are 
quick to confess our faults to one another and to pray for one another that we may be healed. Help us to be folks who are quick to flee, even as we already have done in this service of worship, who are quick to flee again to the foot of the cross and to embrace and receive the forgiveness that is already ours through the once-for-all death of Jesus on the cross. Thank you as well that he lives today. And we praise you in his name. Amen. All right. Um, some of these points in your outline today I'm going to touch on but in brief. Uh, biblical headship. This is a picture of biblical headship, and Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the Savior of the church. That seems pretty basic, right? But it's, it's central to our understanding. It's central to the gospel. If we are people who know Jesus, if we are people who are filled with God's Holy Spirit, if we are people who are letting God's word richly dwell within us, then we want to be gospel-centered. We want to have Christ-centered lives and relationships and churches and pastors and sermons and marriages. And Christ is the head of the body, the Savior of the church. He's the only Savior. And in terms of talking about this fact in, in light of marriage, we should remember that there is no other Savior. Your spouse is not your Savior. Your spouse is not a panacea, a gateway to to a sexual bonanza and to marital bliss and, and to your journey of personal self-fulfillment. No person on earth can meet all of your needs. Now, your spouse better be meeting some of your needs than nobody else is meeting. That's the biblical moray. But Jesus is the only Savior. Uh, D.A. Carson writes, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a Savior. You need Jesus. You cannot save yourself through your own morals, through your own efforts at living a good life or following a philosophy or religion. You cannot save yourself by some sort of combo approach of, well, yeah, I'll believe in God and I've heard about Jesus and Easter and everything, and that, that's, that's good, and and I'll follow the golden rule. I'll try to do my best. I'll turn the other cheek. I'll, you know, love my neighbor as myself. You can't save yourself. The gospel begins with the bad news that tells us all have sinned and that the wages of sin are death. And we need a great savior, a perfect one, one who would give his life as a substitute for the debt that we owe to God. There's only one Savior, and it's not your husband. It's not your wife. The one that you have or the one that you wish that you have or the one that you hope to have one day, they're not your Savior. Only Jesus can be your Savior. Second, um, this passage teaches to leave, then cleave. 
leave, then cleave. That's, that's the biblical sequence of events. It seems pretty basic, but I'm telling you, in the world today, it's lost, and I'm afraid in the church, in our pews, it's lost today, too. Now, we may, may not be so crass as the world of, well, you know, before you buy a car, you're going to take it out for a test drive, right? Before you buy a pair of shoes, you're going to try it on, right? You've you got to make sure you're sexually compatible before you get married, right? All right, we may not be that crass in the way that we phrase it or go about it, but a lot of times we get it backwards and we say, well, if you really love the person, what does it matter? Well, God says it matters. Are you, are, are you letting the word of God richly dwell within you? Are you in the word? And do you understand what God has said about the beauty of sexual intimacy and its proper place, its proper context in marriage? One man to one woman. Leave, then cleave. Uh, there's a principle of oneness. What is the purpose of marriage? I, w- I would say the purpose of marriage is oneness. And I would say the purpose of marriage is not self-fulfillment. And that's, we've, we've, we've all grown up, I like watching movies. I watched a movie yesterday. It was a rom-com. Uh, I was sad, so I watched a rom-com. Don't take away my man card. But, um, um, but, but Hollywood has given us the wrong idea about marriage, you know, about love, about romance. It's that, you know, you've got to find your soulmate. There's one person and one person only who could ever satisfy you, who could meet all your needs, who would cause you to be self-actualized and self-fulfilled in all respects. And, and I'm telling you, I think we make that an idol, that search, the search for the one. And, and I won't bore you with my love story with my wife, Kelly, but we had as romantic a courtship as anybody. Hard for you to imagine, I'm sure. But the purpose of marriage, the purpose of Christian marriage, according to the scriptures, is not self-fulfillment. It's oneness, in my opinion, uh, maybe a better opinion than mine. Tim Keller says it's gospel reenactment. The purpose of marriage, he says, is gospel reenactment from Ephesians chapter 5. That the way that we love our spouse is but a mirror, but a pale reflection of the love that Jesus has for his bride, the body of Christ, the church. And so in marriage, there's this one flesh principle, that physical joining leads to a a spiritual bond. And we are to hold fast to the wife of our youth. If marriage is about self-fulfillment, and I'll I'll steal Keller's illustration, um, says it's like like grocery shopping. I mean, if you have a a market that you favor and you go to the grocery market and you feel like you you know the people there, you you know, you see the same gal at the checkout line a lot of times and you say, Say hi, maybe even ask about their their family or something like that. But it's really a transactional relationship. You're there because they have products that you value at a reasonable price that you're willing to pay, and um, they accept your your money. It's a transactional relationship. But if their produce section starts going downhill or their meat offerings or whatever, or there's a sale on down the street at the next market, you're going to go there. 
your loyalty is, is based on just that transactional sort of thing. Well, that's the, the sort of mentality a lot of us take into our marriage and, and courting and dating relationships. And that's why men have the proverbial midlife crisis, you know, I think I've got to get a I got to get a bigger house and a bigger car and a bigger wife. And, and, and uh, uh, they, they trade their wife in on a new model, right? They get a red convertible and, and trade their wife in on, a, on a, a younger, prettier person. I mean, I dealt with an extended family member and, that he, and his adultery, and he, he told me, well, you know, I'm not happy. And he tried to, he tried to paint himself as the bigger person. Well, I'm not happy, and if I'm not happy, then she can't be happy. So I'm really doing her a favor by getting out of this marriage. Well, see, if, if your view of marriage is it's all about your self-fulfillment, then that makes perfect sense. If your view of marriage is that it's simply transactional, well, if you can get better sex or more money or better looks or more attention or more affection somewhere else, why not just go there? if you have a transactional view of marriage, but if you have a covenant view of marriage, if you're a Christian and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're going to love your spouse no matter what. You see, you see, the world tells us that love is 50-50, right? You do your part and I'll do my part. And you have a romance, you have infatuation, whatever, and you, you, you get married, and then all of a sudden you're in a relationship with this person you have to live with the rest of your life, and they have to live with you. And before too very long, you start going, hmm, she's only given 49. That means I'm giving 51. Oh, man. Lately, things have been 60-40 in our relationship. I, you know, that, that, that's not good. Well, that's a, another transactional view of relationships. I'll meet you halfway. But a covenant view of marriage says, no, it's not a 50-50 enterprise. I'm entered into covenant with you before our Lord, and I'm going to love you and sacrifice myself for you no matter how you respond to me. Now, it's a lot more enjoyable if, if it's a reciprocal relationship. If both people are doing that, talk about self-fulfillment. If you are privileged enough to be married to a, another believer who believes that marriage isn't all about their self-fulfillment, but it's about modeling Christ's love, for his church, and they're committed to you. They really meant it when they said, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health and all that stuff. And their view is, I'm in it 100%. If both parties adopt that sort of attitude, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. And it, and it, and it does become fulfilling in that sense. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. There's a one flesh principle, and, and oneness in marriage reflects Christ's love for the church. My marriage should mirror Christ's love for the church, that what Keller calls the gospel reenactment. The way I treat Kelly is to emulate Jesus' love for his bride, and Kelly's willingness to follow me should model the church's glad-hearted subjection to Christ. Okay, I'm going to share, I hope in brief, a couple of things that are not in your outline. I just, I just didn't get this stuff to Gary to get it on the screen, okay? Three thoughts about spirit-filled marriage. 
Spiritual marriage starts with mutual submission. So if you are a jotter, I'm going to give them to you and then talk about them for a moment. Spirit-filled marriage starts with mutual submission. Second, a spirit-filled wife voluntarily submits to a husband who exhibits biblical headship in the home. And third, a spirit-filled husband gently leads his wife, sacrificing himself for the betterment of his spouse. Spiritual marriage starts with mutual submission. All right, so one of the many reasons that this passage is controversial and kind of hard to preach on is verse 22, right? Wives, submit. And there's that word, submit, be subject. And immediately people start to bridle and people outside the church make fun of us and say it's ridiculous that it oppresses women. That's why I read verse 21, submitting to one another, all of us, mutual submission, humility, marking and characterizing all of our relationships out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled marriage starts with mutual submission. There's a shared reverence for Christ. We humble ourselves, we love one another, there's mutual respect. We recognize that there is order in this world that God has set up various structures for our well-being. And marriage is the building block of, of human society. And it's being assailed. What does it mean to be subject to one another? It means to line up under the authority. Uh, as a military person would fall in. That's where we left off last time, talking about it three weeks ago. And so I place myself under the authority. I yield. Think about the Roman centurion who asked for Christ to effect a miracle in his family. And Jesus marveled at this non-Jewish person's faith. And he, why? Because he said, I too am a man under authority. I say to one go and he goes and another one come and he comes. So just say the word, Jesus, and I believe it. And that faith caused Jesus to marvel because that guy understood authority, that he too was a man under authority. So if you're a boss, if you're a CEO, you still are under authority. We'll see that next week. If you're the husband, the head of the house, you're still under authority. Uh, Second, a spiritual wife voluntarily submits to a husband. Women, you choose well. Tim Downs once said, don't marry an airhead. That, that was his marital advice. Don't marry an airhead. Women, you better choose well. Am I willing to follow this man? See, we go on this quest to find the one. And we figure the one who's going to help us to reach self-actualization and to cause us to have this bliss of self-fulfillment every day for the rest of our lives, that they must be a finished product. But they're not. They're a sinful, fallen person, and you are too. But you're in it together. So women choose well. Do I want to follow this man? If you're, if you're a single woman, if you're a young woman and you're here today or you're, you're unmarried, 
that's what you need to ask yourself. Not is he handsome or does he have a sense of humor or treat the wait staff well or whatever. You need to ask yourself, do I want to follow this man? Do I want to voluntarily place myself under his headship, under his leadership? But it's voluntary. Man, if you have to pull rank in the household, you're not the leader. You're just not. It's a voluntary attitude on the part of the wife. Uh, if, if I forget to say it, I think I'll say it. If I forget to say it somewhere else, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. So part of the reason that in our culture, and even in the church, that people bridle under this, that women bridle under this, is because it, it's extrapolated out many times to, to say that, that women have to kowtow to all mankind. And there's a yes and a no. There's a, it's this, no. The no is, it says, submit to your own husband, not to every man. So no, in a sense. On the other hand, being filled with God's spirit and walking in humility before the Lord means that we're all submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's a both and. The husband better exhibit biblical headship in the home. He may be the chief, and when in First Peter chapter 3, it talks about the Old Testament, Genesis, and Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's a lowercase l, man. <laughs> it means sir. Uh, not an not a uppercase l. Biblical headship. It doesn't mean you get to be a tyrant, an exploiter, an oppressor. Honey, give me another. Give me a cold one. And your spouse is not your mother so that you can run off and play with the boys. Some men live in perpetual adolescence and they never grow up. And they just want their gal just to take care of them and do everything for them. That's not biblical headship. Submission doesn't mean weakness or inequality. Uh, wives are called to respect their husbands. Did you notice the passage closes with that? Respect their husbands. One writer says this, if a wife's greatest calling is to be submissive to her husband, a loving husband helps his wife to be submissive. Some wives never learn biblical submission because their husbands rarely set a positive example. They fight against the counsel of the church, meaning the wisdom, they speak blasphemously of civil authorities. They complain about their employers' policies. Yet they demand full submission from their wives. God says all men must submit to proper authority. You can hardly help your wife do this if you aren't doing it yourself. A spirit-filled husband gently leads his wife. One man commented, he who thinks he leads and turns around to find no one following him isn't, is merely taking a walk. If your wife isn't submitting well, maybe you're not leading. A spirit-filled husband, see, that's the premise for this whole thing. It's not talking about every marriage out there in the, in the world. It's talking about for the church, for the believer, for the spirit-filled Christian, for the Christ-centered marriage, this is what it looks like. Worship. 
gentle leadership, sacrificial leadership for the betterment of his spouse. The gospel is right here. I can't unfold it very much, but in the middle of the passage in verses uh, 26 and 7, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That's Jesus' love for his bride, the church. And then we need to learn from that. Are you leading your wife in the Lord? Or are, you, are you letting the word richly dwell within you? Now, I'm not going to mandate you've got to have family devotions every morning at 6 a.m. before you go to work or whatever. Uh, you know, if you can manage that, great. Um, it's a good start for a household if you can do that. I'm not going to put you under the law, but are you in the word at all, guys? Do you spend time with the Lord? And do you ever talk with your wife about spiritual things? Do you, do you ever initiate prayer? I'm not just talking over food. A man must learn to nourish and cherish his wife. Christ is head and Lord, and yet he's also the Savior who gives himself up voluntarily. And a Christian man is called to love his wife. If wives are to respect their husband, it says over and over in this passage three times in the form of essentially a command and, and more than that love your wife love her uh, Gary Thomas author of Sacred Marriage says couples don't fall out of love as much as they fall out of repentance the person so, so only God can forgive sin ultimately but we also humble ourselves and confess our faults, particularly to those that we've sinned against. If you have young children, it's very humbling to confess your sin to your minor children, isn't it? Get down on one knee and you say, son, I got to tell you, daddy was too rough with you today. Daddy was impatient in the way he expressed that to you. That's humbling. The person that I had to confess my sin, the human being, now I confess my sins ultimately to the Lord, against thee and thee only, meaning ultimately have I sinned. Psalm 51, but David sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah the Hittite, against the rest of the soldiers. The number one human being that I have to confess my faults to is Kelly Cox. How are you doing with your repentance in, in your marriage? If elders are to be the chief repenters of the congregation, then the husbands are to be the chief repenters in the marriage. All right, head, heart, hand. No, know that Christ lived and died to sanctify the church. Sanctify, to make holy, to make it set apart, dedicated to the Lord, consecrated, to become more like Jesus, to become conformed more and more to the image of God's one and only Son. That's why he lived. We're saved by his life. We're saved by the life of Jesus. When you know, We just had Easter, we had Good Friday. We're thinking, how, how are you saved? Oh, I'm saved by the death of Jesus. Yes, you are. What, what else? Oh, I'm saved by the resurrection. We just had Easter. Yes. Yes, you could not be saved if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. I made that case two weeks ago. I won't remake it now. You're also saved by the righteous life of Jesus. You're saved by his perfect obedience to the Father. 
And he sacrificed himself. He loved you and me enough to lay down his life of his own volition. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Christ nourishes and cherishes cherishes the church. Um, the great Reformed Baptist preacher, Spurgeon, um, if you don't know what to do for your devotions, one thing you could do be to buy a copy of Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. It's a devotional classic, Morning and Evening. And there's a, a, a passage, like a Bible paragraph, and, and kind of his meditation on it. They're, they're short. They're accessible. Here's what he has to say in one of them in Morning and Evening about marriage. Um, and it's a word to husbands. The Lord Jesus cherishes for the church an unequaled affection in, in which the elect church is the favorite of heaven, the treasure of Christ, the crown of his head, the bracelet of his arm, the breastplate of his heart, the very center and core of his love. And this is the example he models for husbands. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Heart. Head, heart, hand. Heart. To be, be filled with the Spirit. Remember, that is the context for this discussion about Christian marriage. Paul is simply setting forth, he's painting portraits of some of the outworkings of what it means to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. Be reverent, right? Verse 21, the reason we have mutual submission one to another in the body of Christ, is out of reverence for Christ. That's respect and awe and appreciation for who he is. Be sacrificial. Hand, to, uh, to do, love your wife. As I said, it, it's commanded in here at least three times. Mentioned a couple more, maybe. Respect your husband. Submit. All of you to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Um, Lord, just as the disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And as a result, some of your so-called disciples no longer walked with you. They followed you no more. This, this is a hard saying for us in the church. Some of us have heard this over and over. And it's still hard. Others, it rankles us a bit. It challenges us. Others, it convicts us. This is a hard saying. We need the grace of your Holy Spirit. We need your word to dwell richly within us and to renew our minds and to help us to walk in newness of life and to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live more and more unto, to, to righteousness, to you and to love and, and express forgiveness freely in the context of the human relationship in which that's probably the most forgiveness we'll ever need to express. Lord, would you heal marriages? Would you humble us? Would you help us to confess our sins to one another, ultimately to you, but also to one another? to love one another. 
Lord, um, the prayer request sheet this week, like every week, I guess, is full because we can't, we don't have time to enumerate all these names, but you know them. And you know these people are looking to you for their hurts, their suffering. They're asking for Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, to touch them. But we would also ask that their faith may not fail. That in the midst of affliction and heartache and hardship and suffering and pain, which sometimes seems neither momentary nor light, that you would give them eternal perspectives, that they would recognize that it, it, it pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory yet to come. Amen.